Jesus is king. Am I good? Yeah. Am I good, Miles? He can hear me okay? Okay. Well, I heard that uh, Canadians, y'all think that uh, diversity is y'all's strength, eh? So thank you for welcoming me and my Michigander brethren over there, and a shout out to my other American brethren. Uh, Michigan was actually uh, French-Canadian for 100 years before the Anglo-Americans took it over, so I feel like we're all Canadian here, so. <laughs> I come to announce to you that the crusade has already been called. The crusade has been called by His Excellency Arch, Archbishop, God, God be praised, Bishop Athanasius Schneider. Because there is, there has been a Masonic conspiracy of the Vatican. But you already knew that. What maybe you didn't know is that the Masonic conspiracy in the Vatican in 2023, there was actually one back in 1773. Let's go back in time for a minute and talk about the patrons of this conference. In 1773, that was when the Masonically infiltrated Catholic governments of France, Spain, and Portugal pressured the conclave to elect a weak, liberal, and pliable pope. And they found him in Pope Clement XIV. Pope Clement XIV, they were pressuring him for one purpose. These, this Masonic conspiracy was dead set on one purpose. The fallen angels had been coordinating this conspiracy for one purpose, and that purpose was to suppress the army of God, the great soldiers who came out of the Council of Trent to beat back the hordes of heretics and to take back Christendom and indeed the whole world for Christ. That's right, I speak about the classical Jesuits. Now, Jesuit has become a slur, which is, which is a, great, a great dishonor to the holy name of Jesus. The Jesuits today, the devil hates the Jesuits because the Jesuits were formed by God himself to beat back the heretics and all the wickedness of our modern world. And so first, the, first, the devil's first, first tactic was to find this weak pope to suppress this great army. Nowadays, the Jesuits are Jesuits in name only, unfortunately. Shout out to all the good Jesuits out there who are actually true Jesuits. We need to take back the name of Jesuit because it's the holy name of Jesus, the society of Jesus. But these, this, this weak pope, Clement XIV, suppressed the Jesuits, which was a total betrayal, a complete betrayal of Christendom, a complete betrayal of the entire Counter-Reformation. And this was in 1773. Do you think our forefathers went on Twitter and complained and cried about a corrupt pope? Do you think that they were really, they were about to lose their faith in the Roman dogmas? They were going to go become Eastern Orthodox or worse? Absolutely not. They, pick up, they picked up their swords in 1773 and they increased their penance and they increased their fighting. But guess what? That was the second great papal betrayal. The first great papal betrayal, post-Trent, came under the, probably the worst pope of the past 500 years before our modern period. 
Anybody know who the worst pope was in the last 500 years? I'll give you a free book if you know who it was. What, David? Borgia? I don't, I don't know if this guy was a Borgia, but what was his name? Anyone know? Alexander? What? Alexander? Oh, no, he was, he was before Trent. Alexander VI? No. The answer is Urban VIII. Guess what? Urban VIII was the pope right before the Canadian martyrs laid down their lives. He ended his reign in 1644. And by that time, Saint René Jupil, if I pronounce the French correctly, pardon me, I'm an American, René Jupil had already laid down his life under the most corrupt pope in the past 500 years. Urban VIII, quote, quoting from my book, referencing Henry Sears' fantastic text, Phoenix from the Ashes, Urban VIII was the worst corrupted pope since the Renaissance. He mutilated young boys to sing in his choir. He officiated and promoted sorcery in the Vatican. He paid sorcerers to do divination. He militarized the papacy. We think the papacy is, we have a problem with the papacy right now, and we do. But how would you feel if you, uh, if you lived in Naples and the Pope came with his army and invaded your town with his army? How would you feel about the Pope then? You might pick up your sword and fight against his army, and you should. But that's what the type of thing that Urban VIII did. But the worst thing he did, perhaps, was that, many people don't know this, but the Protestant revolt was a failure. The Protestant revolt was a failure, chiefly because of the Jesuits. But there was also the temporal sword, which I'll get to in a minute. By 1600, by 1600, okay, so this is less than 100 years after Martin Luther nailed his, his theses, 1517. 1600, by that time, Protestantism was in decline in many areas, or its growth had stopped outside England, unfortunately. But the Protestant revolt was a disaster. It was a failure. They had failed to do what they wanted to do. And it's chiefly because of this army of God, which I'll get to in a minute. But Urban VIII betrayed this advance with his corrupt, the corrupt prelate of the French church at the time, Cardinal Richelieu. Cardinal Richelieu was one of the most corrupt prelates of his day. And he was the one, he was the prelate, while these Jesuits were laying down their life in Canada. Cardinal Richelieu was overseeing much of New France at this time. Do you think our forefathers went on Twitter and complained because... No, they laid down their blood for Jesus Christ. We have a corrupt pope, we got a corrupt Vatican, so what? So what? Let's be men right now. Let's take up the same cross that the Canadian martyrs passed down to us. So, Urban VIII and Cardinal Richelieu during the Thirty Years' War. The Thirty Years' War was the turning point. The Thirty Years' War was when Catholic Spain and other Catholic powers were fighting against the greatest Protestant armies of the day in that time. And it was a very, very bitter war. Very bitter. Lots of destruction. And the turning point in that war. That was the war to decide Christendom post-Reformation because the Protestants had failed. The Protestants had failed and they started a huge war 
to try their best to reverse that failure, but they were losing the war. The Catholic powers were winning, and this was the battle to decide Christendom. Well, guess what? Urban VIII and Cardinal Richelieu sided with the Protestants. They sided with the wrong side during the Thirty Years' War, and they betrayed Christendom. And this, in fact, was the turning point which allowed Protestantism to continue, ultimately into the Enlightenment, ultimately into all of our modern evils. And because of this betrayal, this was the first papal betrayal, the second one I already mentioned, Clement XIV. And we, if we get to the 20th century, we can talk about more papal betrayals, which I'm sure you're familiar with. My point is, if you read my book, City of God versus City of Man, my point is, what we're dealing with right now is nothing new. This is City of God versus City of Man. This is the angels and the saints and the men of God in the flesh today against the fallen angels, their conspiracy, and all of their enemies in the flesh, including the Freemasons, Marxists, Justin Trudeau, or who else, whoever else, makes himself an enemy of God. The Canadian martyrs laid down their life. They were men of God. So I come to you to announce to you that this crusade, the same spirit of that militant spirit of Jesus Christ, which is in, in the true society of Jesus, of St. Ignatius, that militant spirit continues to this day. Let me return back to that in one, after I touch on one more thing with the Canadian martyrs. The Canadian martyrs were priests of God. And as priests, as St. Thomas says, it is unfitting that a priest should shed blood even in his own defense, even if it's a just war, a just defense. A priest should be conformed to Jesus Christ in all things. And so a priest should never shed blood. But the Canadian martyrs and all of their Jesuit allies, in Michigan we have Père Marquette, and he sailed down the Mississippi with the voyageurs, and you needed voyageurs to fight with their muskets against the Iroquois Empire. New France, New France is here. French Canada, <laughs> French Canada, A. <laughs> French Canada is here. New France is here is because, because men of God fought against the Iroquois Empire. And that's us. That's the laymen. We do have to shed blood because we wield a different sword than the clerics. The clerics wield, this is in my book, the clerics wield the spiritual sword. Their job is to fight directly against the fallen angels. And they offer the holy sacrifice of the mass. But, and when violence comes, they are conformed to Christ in all things, they become martyrs. They don't fight back. They're conforted, conformed to Jesus Christ in all things. And they, they attain this glorious crown that we celebrate in the Canadian martyrs. But for lay people, we wield the temporal sword. The temporal sword of Christendom was seen in New France because it fought against the Iroquois Empire. It saved countless lives. It saved countless altars. It saved the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. They could celebrate the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass because our French forefathers were keeping back the Iroquois advance and the Anglo advance later. And this is our job, this is our role as lay men of God, is to wield this temporal sword. That doesn't just mean violence, but it also means defending the altars of God. 
In Canada, you have seen the Marxists firsthand attacking your altars. What did you do? All of you and me, we are responsible as men, as lay people. We have to wield this temporal sword, which means, practically speaking, for example, setting up a security detail in your parish. If you don't have one, get one. So men of God know what to do if the Marxists come again knocking. They know what to do. Which we can, and we will use all means of just defense, which is proportionate to the attack. This is Catholic, a Catholic understanding of self-defense. Now, what is the crusade that we have today? And it, this is the crusade that we promote at 1 Peter 5. Because we cannot simply fight against flesh and blood. Many men get too zealous. They get excited. And they start fighting against flesh and blood. They start fighting with excess, with sinful anger. That is why we propose this crusade. We have taken up this crusade of Athanasius Snyder. Bishop Schneider called the crusade of Eucharistic reparation in 2020 at a time when the Eucharistic sacrileges that had already been gone, going on for a, a number of generations had, had, had gotten even worse with COVID. I don't need to, I don't need to tell you, because y'all had the Marxism just like I had in Michigan, taking away your altars, taking away your sacraments. But priests themselves were also complicit unfortunately. And so as laymen, we are not here, we should not give in to sinful anger and be hate, hate these priests or any, any cleric who abuses the Eucharist, but we should fervently offer up reparation for these sins. This is the spiritual core. Our lay sodality at 1 Peter 5, you can go to 1peter5.com crusade for all of the details. This is the crusade of Eucharistic reparation. There is a base requirement of Eucharistic adoration in reparation, and there's a prayer that His Excellency wrote for this whole cause. This is the prayer that you play at least once a month, and there are extra requirements once you want to go to the next level. The goal is to establish in every diocese Eucharistic reparation for sins against the Blessed Sacrament, which is the basis in, in, in the United States. I don't know if y'all's y'all bishops have Eucharistic revival like we do in the United States, but our bishops want Eucharistic revival in the United States, which is a good thing. But we ask, at first we give reparation to Almighty God. This is the spiritual core of this crusade. We cannot go out fighting the Marxists in the streets to defend our altars unless we are already fasting and praying in reparation for the sins of others. Otherwise, we will fight against flesh and blood. We will, we will fall into excesses of anger or violence, which are sinful, and pollute the holy name of Jesus. We must be above reproach with the purity of intention that Father just sp spoke of. So, find me at the table if you want to join the crusade. You, you have this, this is our crusader cross. And this is the spiritual core. If we have this spiritual core in place in our diocese and in our parishes, then we can build on the temporal sword. 
If we don't have the spiritual in place, the temporal sword will be turned to excess. And we already know how powerful the media is to destroy and distort, as you already saw in Canada, and to provoke violence. Now, the second lay sodality that we have just launched is the Fellowship of St. Nicholas. The Fellowship of St. Nicholas is a lay sodality of fasting. Kennedy Hall's book talks about effeminacy. It's an addiction to pleasure so that you cannot suffer. If you want to be a man of God, you must suffer. You must suffer. No man can be a man without suffering. So if you're reluctant to suffer, you're a boy. Kill the boy and be a man. Fasting is critical for this because fasting attacks and moderates moderates the addiction that your, your concupiscible appetite in your body and your soul, your concupiscible appetite, God created that appetite for two things. That appetite is ordered towards two great goods that God created. One is food. The other is the marital embrace. God created these things as goods. But we cannot, but because of original sin, we are corrupted and we cannot we are slaves to our bellies. If you are a slave to your belly, the fallen angels have over overcome you. If you are a slave to your belly, you have already lost the battle. So this lay sodality, we want to overcome effeminacy and root it out. That is how you do it. Join our sodality. The requirement is very difficult. The tier one requirement for everyone is to embrace the 1917 Code of Canon Law requirements for fasting, minus partial abstinence. And I know I've, I'm out of time. I'm wrapping up, Cam. I'm good. <laughs> Thank you to Cam for all his great work. This is a fantastic conference. So happy to be here. The base requirement is difficult. And if you've never fasted, you will crash and burn. And that's okay. The point is to start, start now. The base requirement is fasting. That means one meal per day, two snacks. Six days a week of Lent. Every single day of Lent is a day of fasting, except for Sundays. Also, no meat for the entirety of Lent. From Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday, including Sundays. Now Sundays you don't fast. So you can eat as many meals, non-meat meals as you want on Sunday. Please do. But this is the base requirement. This is how our forefathers fasted. In fact, as uh, I think Kennedy mentioned, in the Canadian martyrs, there was a scarcity of food. There was, there was such little food that the, the Indian Catholics, the Indian Catholics were, were dispensed from various fasting regulations because they couldn't find food. Do you think the Canadian martyrs complained and cried because their bellies hurt? Do you think that they, they had a problem because they hadn't eaten? Or they hadn't eaten meat? No, they suffered all things for Christ and this is how we can become men of God. So this is a practical way that you can join us in offering up reparation and overcoming effeminacy. Finally, 
with the little time that I have, I'm going to read the words of St. Bernard of Clairvaux. He died in 1153. This is the glorious time of the so-called Middle Ages. And if you want to know why it's the so-called Middle Ages, read my book. The glories of Christendom, 1153. Here's what he says in his crusader speech. This is St. Bernard of Clairvaux. Quote, How can you not know that we live in a period of chastisement and ruin? That enemy of mankind has caused the breath of corruption to fly over all regions. We behold nothing but unpunished wickedness. Neither the laws of men nor the laws of religion have sufficient power to check the depravity of customs and the triumph of the wicked. The demon of heresy has taken possession of the chair of truth, and God has sent forth his malediction upon his sanctuary. 1153. O ye who listen to me, hasten then to appease the anger of heaven, but no longer implore his goodness by vain complaints. Clothe not yourself in sackcloth, but cover yourselves with your impenetrable bucklers. That's a shield. The din of arms, the dangers, the labors, the fatigues of war are the penances that God now imposes on you. Hasten then to expiate your sins by victories over the infidels, the Mohammedans, and let the deliverance of holy places be the reward of your repentance. Fly then to arms. Let a holy ire animate you in the fight. And let the Christian world resound with these words of the prophet. Cursed be he who does not stain his sword with blood. If the Lord calls you to the defense of his heritage, think not that his hand has lost its power. Could he not send 12 legions of angels or breathe one word and all his enemies would crumble away into dust? But God has considered the sons of men to open for them the roads of his mercy. His goodness has caused to dawn for you a day of safety by calling on you to avenge his glory and his name. Christian warriors, he who gave his life for you, today demands yours in return. These are the combats worthy of you. Combats in which it is glorious to conquer and advantageous to die. Illustrious knights, generous defenders of the cross, Remember the example of your fathers who conquered Jerusalem and whose names are inscribed in heaven. Abandon then the things that perish to gather unfading palms and conquer a kingdom that has no end. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Our Lady of Fatima. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.